Andrew, it's one of the great joys of my life to be the pastor here at Oakland to get to do life with you. I, I am pumped that you are here. You made a courageous decision. If you're here for the first time or first couple of times, and we know it took a lot of courage to come in here and to find a seat and to deal with the foolishness of us hollering and shouting. But we want to praise you for your courage. We believe God brought you here for a reason, and he wants to reveal his love to you. And we've been praying for you for weeks and months that God might bring you to us, that we might be able to love you well. So thank you for being courageous this morning. I want to just, um, as we transition uh, towards the sermon, by way of transition, want to just uh, call out two quick things about why uh, we party on Easter that won't be in the sermon. And they have to do with these kids who were up front. I know uh, for many, this might be a stretch to have uh, party favors in church or shouts of victory or whatever it is to hear the sound of duck calls and, and kids laughing and, and all that. And I, I get that. I can remember when I was a little boy, some of the most trouble I ever got into was not wearing socks on Easter Sunday. I was in a suit, tie, patent leather shoes, no socks. And you would have thought I had stepped on Jesus' grave. So I get it. But we party on Easter in part because the sad truth of the matter is some of these children might grow up to walk away from the faith. And years from now, when it's been a decade since they've been in church or heard the gospel, and they see an Easter egg, we want our kids to remember that at Easter, we partied. I want them to wake up and think, what was that day that, that Oakland lost its mind? What was that day that our church thought was worth screaming and hollering and shouting? The church that never got excited. What was that? Why? And the gospel to call them back. And as our kids were blowing on those things, I was thinking of duck calls because I like duck calls. Uh, and it reminded me, I think by the Holy Spirit, there's a legend uh, that Peter, uh, Simon Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, uh, who betrayed Jesus and then heard the sound of a rooster uh, that reminded him uh, of his betrayal and of Jesus' love for him, uh, that for the rest of his life he could never go with hearing the sound of a rooster without crying. How cool would it be if you and I, every time we heard one of those annoying party favors, thought of Jesus, like Peter thinks of Jesus when he hears roosters? What more could we want for our kids? What more could we want for ourselves? We're going to read God's Bible together, and then I'm going to teach it for a little bit. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to uh, John's Gospel. We're not looking at Luke. We're going to look at the very end of John's Gospel. John chapter 20. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's easy to find. Uh, if you go to the table of contents, it'll tell you what page it starts on. You can go there look for the big number 20. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about... 85% of the way through the Bible. So we're in John chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about it together. Listen to God's Word. The Bible says that early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John, the guy writing the book. This is how he remembers this special Easter day. And Mary Magdalene said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started towards the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other people who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one angel at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that Jesus was the gardener, Mary Magdalene said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him, and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet gone to my Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene ran to the other disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her, on the evening of that same first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came to, and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, then their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, then they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, was one of the twelve disciples. But he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand and put it in my side, and stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written down that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for giving your Holy Spirit. It's because of your death and the gift of your Holy Spirit that we're bold, that I'm bold to come and to ask you to use me this morning to open eyes and open hearts and open minds. I pray this morning we would not talk about you like you are not in this room because by the power of your Holy Spirit you are here. You are here just as you were to your disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to hear you and to see you, to fall in love with you, that we might spend our days living glorious, resurrected, overcoming lives, that we might might see you transform all the sorrow in our lives, all the thorns and thistles into flowers and fruit trees, that we might be a blessing in your world, that your fame might go forth through us, that the world might enjoy your love, and that we might be the vanguard of all. Lord, we pray because you told us if we prayed, you would hear us in heaven. So we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Friends, we party on Easter because if the resurrection is true, then it is the greatest news ever. It is the best day ever. It is the day that your heart has been yearning for ever since it first experienced pain or shame or mortality. It's the day your soul has longed for since your first funeral, since your first puppy died, ever since your imaginary friend evaporated into the rationalistic hubris of humanity. If on Easter so long ago Jesus actually rose from the dead in a new transformed body, transformed spiritual, physical, fully alive body, if he was really for real, dead as a doornail, dead as roadkill, dead as Fred, if he was dead, but now he is fully alive in a miraculous transformed body, body, then today we party. You can forget Super Bowls or national championships or your birthday. Today is the day to lose your mind in celebration and feasting. This is the day to scream and cheer and dance and laugh your head off because if the resurrection actually occurred, If God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, if that happened and he was given a permanent, eternal life, then all those other days, your wedding day, your birthday, the birthday of your first child, your victory day, the day, uh, your sobriety date, your adoption date, all those other days bear more eternal weight than you could ever imagine for they're just foretaste and previews of that Easter that Jesus rose from the dead and the final Easter when he will come back to make all things right. When you you and I will be raised to party forever to celebrate God's goodness and the beauty of life and to joy of community and the satisfaction of justice and the sweetness of victory forever and ever. But friends, that is a giant if, a huge if. It is maybe the biggest if in history. Check that. It is the greatest if in history. The largest if you will ever face is if Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus did not rise, if Jesus is still dead in an unmarked grave in the Middle East, if Jesus is dust and dirt, or Jesus is reincarnate as Sally or Adam or John, 
Then the apostle, then as the apostle Paul uh, wrote it this way, he says, then if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. Everything that you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God because all these affidavits we have passed on to you verifying God raised Jesus up. They would be sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. And if corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as you ever were. And it's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and in the resurrection, because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Jesus is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Friends, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, and Easter is a myth made up to comfort distressed souls, then it is the most diabolical of all lies. If Jesus is dead, like Buddha is dead and Muhammad is dead, then Easter is not just false. It is malicious. It is cruel poison meant to dose you into spiritual death. Either Easter is the greatest day ever or the worst day ever. It will not occupy some indifferent middle space as just another decent Sunday, somewhere between Super Bowl Sunday and the last Sunday of baseball season. This is true because if Easter did not occur, then Jesus was just another man and not even the good sort of man. For Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to speak on God's behalf. He claimed the ability to reconcile people to God, to forgive sins, and to uh, put people in God's presence, to give them God's very spirit. And if he's not raised, then he couldn't do any of those things. And so he was either a liar, telling things he knew he could not do, or he was a lunatic, saying things he thought he could do but could not. And all the people who followed him were either liars who repeated those lies knowing they were false, or they were lunatics who had been deceived and caught up into mass chaos. Either Jesus is Messiah or a madman. But, 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 oh, but if Easter occurred, if up, up, up from the grave he arose, then Jesus is not just a spiritual teacher, he's not just a good man, he's not just an influential figure or a radical egalitarian or a Jewish rebel or a religious zealot. He is Lord, he is Savior, he is God's vindicated revelator. He is uh, the one person proven by God, sent to reveal God's truth and God's nature and the ways uh, that humanity can be reconciled to God. If he arose from the dead, then he is God's appointed one, the only one, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Friends, this may sound narrow and intolerant, but it's not narrow, it's just the truth. You can imagine the first disciples, right, saying these crazy Sentences. They would come to the resurrection and say Jesus was actually rose and people would try to kill them because they realized that if Jesus was risen, if Jesus was resurrected, there are no questions, more questions about who to follow. He is utterly unique. And you can imagine Peter and, and Paul and, and James and John saying, like, I know that's narrow, but what do you want me to do about it? He, there's only one. If I knew of two resurrected men, I'd point them both to you. But there's only one. And so this if stands large before us. It stands with the, largest, the largeness of history's Everest 
or Hell's Grand Canyon. And I could stand up here and take that and talk flippantly to you and talk vaguely about springtime and dawn after dark. And that might warm your heart for a little bit and you might go out and bounce around like the Easter Bunny for a little while. But it will not save your soul. And so I want to show you a few things in Scripture and in history that speak to the truth of Easter. And then I want to show you a few applications of that to us. But I'm going to go fast. So hold on to your Easter bonnet. Ah, Charles Coulson once said this about Easter. He said, I know Easter, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that the 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so let me point out a few things that point to the historicity and the truth of the resurrection. These are undisputed, uh, uh, the, the first ones of these are undisputed historical facts, and then the other ones are things in the Bible that would not be there if it were not a true story, or at least a story that demands uh, your truth, your assent to it. The first is that Jesus really died, that Jesus was good and dead. John chapter 19 says uh, that it was, starting in verse 31, says, Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other man who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and so they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it gave his testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so you can believe it as well. What's happening in that, that snippet there is something that archaeology has verified, uh, that when you are dying on a cross, you die of suffocation slowly because the only way to breathe is to push yourself up on your nail-driven nail feet and to catch a breath, and then you fall limp back on your arms. But while you hang on your arms, you can't breathe. And so to speed up the process of killing someone, uh, they would come and they would break uh, your shin bones so that you couldn't push up anymore and you would suffocate more quickly. And the, they're trying to make these men die more quickly, but Jesus was already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they verify he is already dead by piercing him with a, sphere, a spear. We actually have archaeological um, findings that show this is uh, the practice that happened during the time. But we see uh, that Jesus was dead, and this is verified by a spear either through his fluid-filled lungs, or maybe it, the spear pierces his pericardium, the, the sac around the heart, as it filled with fluid. Jesus was dead, good and dead. We also know because a later, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea will go and ask for Jesus' body, and Pilate only releases the body after he has verified that Jesus is dead. Bluntly, we don't have to guess too much about whether Jesus was dead or not, because the men who killed Jesus die if they fail. And so they don't fail. This is their job, and they are good at it. 
Only the most desperate of conspiracy theorists believe that the professional executioners whose life was on the line for any failure would fail to kill an enormously public figure. The second uh, historical fact is there's an empty tomb. And the Bible attests to this. It is agreed upon fact that the tomb was empty. And we see three different eyewitnesses verifying the tomb is empty. And we're given names. Uh, Simon Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene. These three uh, see the empty tomb. In the other Gospels, we'll see uh, that the religious leaders and the political soldiers all verify the same thing, that the tomb is empty. And so either the body was stolen, which would have been prevented by an armed guard and a giant rock and a Roman seal, or the body was raised. And you don't need to be a forensic scientist to confirm the historical fact that the tomb was empty. If, as some um, conspiracy theorists want to say, that the disciples just went to the wrong tomb, don't you think Jesus' enemies would have said, Dummy, it wasn't that one, it was this one. His body's right here, here's his bones, we had them bleached. If Jesus' Jesus' body was still in the same tomb, or even if Jesus' body was stolen by the, the religious leaders, don't you think every time a Christian claimed Jesus was risen, they would just point to his body and his bones? But they couldn't. In fact, they couldn't, and Christians lost the tomb. Christians didn't make a shrine out of the tomb, which happens with every other public figure when they die, which is it would probably happen with uh, Billy Graham, that his body will lie in a um, memorial somewhere and people will go on pilgrimage to see it. But Jesus, we don't have good idea. Nobody has an idea where he was buried. We don't have good data on it because he didn't stay there, but for what, two nights? It'd be like somebody remembering which hotel room you stayed in on your, you know, 35th business trip to Reno. The next we see is that the women, all four accounts of the gospel, re, uh, the gospel of Jesus' resurrection, agree that Jesus first appeared to women. And this points to the historicity of the fact because in the first century, women could not testify in court. If you were making this story up, you would never have the first witnesses be women because women's word in that day and time was not it didn't hold legal weight. And so if you were making something up and you wanted it to be bulletproof and you wanted it to be per- perfect and you wanted people to believe it wholeheartedly, uh, then you would make Simon, Peter, and John show up there first. But Simon, Peter, and John don't show up there first and they don't see Jesus first. Every gospel agrees that Jesus appears to women first. And the only reason uh, that scholars will tell you that this would be in the Bible, that this story would happen this way, is because the gospel writers... Christians were concerned with truth and not with propaganda. And the last thing I'll point to um, is in this gospel, you see Jesus over and over uh, show them his hands and his feet and his side. And he says, see and touch. He has a body. He is not a ghost or an apparition. And if he were a ghost or an apparition, if he were a phantasma or a hallucination, This would not make it into the Bible because this puts Jesus in the corporal world, the material world, in some kind of transformed body that can come through locked doors, that can appear and disappear. But when it's there, you can touch it, you can hug it, you can feel it. It's a body that can eat and embrace. And you wouldn't write this stuff down if it were just a myth made to make yourself feel better. You'd tell the same silly things that we tell people now, that that your father lives forever in your heart. That that person you love lives uh, forever in your memories. That your love for them was real and you will always have that. 
But the disciples aren't trying to say that. They are trying to say something objectively different from that, that Jesus' body was transformed into a glorious spiritual, physical body that can never die again. And so if this did happen, if this happened, I want to turn to a few takeaways very quickly. If this happened, the main takeaway I want to impress upon you this morning is that you and I were not meant to survive. We were meant to flourish. We were meant to thrive. That you and I were not meant to survive all the pain and all the brokenness in our world. That the goal of life is not just to get through it, to not give up, to not cave in, but that you and I were meant for something infinitely better. We were meant to flourish. That you and I will not just survive our mistakes, but we will flourish knowing that all things work together for my good. And I want to think about this with a few questions. The first is a question uh, that somebody asked me recently. And they said, you know, I've been thinking about this and my brain kind of hurts when I, when I wrap my head around it. But what happens to you when you die? I can't get my brain around that question. What happens when you die? Death brings about existential questions. What happens after death? It brings up fear. And so we do whatever it takes to survive. And when we're ruled by fear of survival, when our goal is just to survive, when the goal of all of it, the purpose of it, is survival of the fittest, then we live by the laws of survival and the laws of the jungle, and we kill or be killed. But the goal of creation is not survival of the fittest. The goal is not to do whatever it takes to collect as much as you can or to have as many offspring as you can. Jesus' resurrection reveals what happens after death. It reveals that our life is eternal. It reveals that what happens after death is not annihilation or a spiritual fog, but personhood. Jesus is still Jesus, and Mary will still be Mary after she dies. That your life has eternal significance. And the, so, the, so the question is no longer will you survive, but can you flourish in the existential, as the existential fear of death evaporates? You will die, but your life will be raised new. And so you can thrive knowing that your life has purpose. It has a point, and the point is endless joy in God's presence, that you were built to know God and walk in the sunshine of His love. But why all this pain and suffering? Another question that I've been, I've been attacked with lately. Why all this pain and suffering? Why do we have to survive so much tribulation and trial? In the fight of cancer or depression or mass starvation or disaster, is there really a God? Because it seems like God has gone AWOL, that God has abandoned us. And often, my good friends, smart men and women, will cite pain and suffering as the reason that they cannot believe in God. But the resurrection shows us something incredible about God. God does not answer our question of why God. He doesn't give us a long, drawn-out treatise. But when you're in the hospital, and you're saying goodbye to the woman you love most, or when you're closing the eyelids of your grandfather, the last thing you want is the doctor talking in your ear why their heart stopped beating, giving you a medical treatise explaining everything. What you most want is someone just to sit and hurt with you and cry with you. And in Jesus, we see God who looks on the suffering of the world and instead of giving a rational discourse, explaining it all away, He moves into it. He suffers it. 
He suffers rejection and shame. He suffers loneliness and persecution. He suffers hunger and famine and war. He lives as a refugee. He lives in a, a life where he's bullied and looked down upon because he's single, where he lives a life where people call him crazy or demon-possessed. And in his life, he reveals that those places that suggest God's absence most profoundly are the places where God is present. You see, nothing could be more forsaken, more God-awful, than the torturous death of an innocent man. No place could cause us to doubt that God actually exists more than that. No place could be more absent, where are you now, God, than a tomb. And yet Jesus goes to the cross in this God-awful, God-forsaken place, and he shows us that that is where God is, that when you feel most abandoned by God, Jesus is there meeting you. The, 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 the ancients used to say, Lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That there is nowhere I can go away from you. And so what you see in the resurrection is that Jesus can take the most heinous, the most awful, the most God-forsaken things that make us our hearts break and make us question whether God is good and trustworthy, and He can transform them into beauty. We've been looking for the last six weeks at an installment right here that was full of thorns and thistles and a bare naked cross. And what we see in the resurrection is that Jesus can take all of that and have it bloom and can give it purpose and life and make it beautiful. And so the last thing that we see is whether our sin can be forgiven, not just the pain that we suffer can, can be redeemed, but whether our sin that we commit can be forgiven. And friends, I just put it to you bluntly. As Christians, we believe that Jesus' death was the payment for sin, and the resurrection is the change. It is proof that Jesus' death was more than satisfactory for all of the wrong that has been done to us, that all of it has been taken care of and put in front of us. Friends, what I want to impress upon you this morning is that Jesus' life is the first of the prototype of what your life and my life was meant to be. A life where we see our past not just forgotten, where we see our sin not just erased, where we see the harm and the trauma done to us not just healed, but actually used as an instrument of blessing and salvation to the world. I was reminded uh, this week uh, by a brother, another Christian, who reminded me as we were thinking about this, he said he thought it was best summed up uh, in uh, one of the promises uh, that AA repeats all the time. A promise that says, we will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, but we will see how our experience and can benefit others. We will see God transform those parts of our lives that we wish we could cut out, those parts of our lives that we wish we could erase, those parts of our lives that we wish we could selectively um, expunge from our memory. We will see God actually take that, take it and use it to help someone, to bless someone, to further his kingdom. We will see uh, that the, the world will not just be rid of all the pain and hunger and sorrow and selfishness and envy and jealousy and pride and racism, that all of that will happen, but the world will also be filled with things like uh, love and justice and compassion and generosity and joy and health and wholeness and sharing and love. 
We will see people work hand in hand and celebrate other successes without jealousy. People we devoted to the love of God and to the love of neighbor. We will see God take things that we think are rubbish and transform them into blessings. God will take that relationship, that abusive relationship that you suffered in unjustly for far too long. And God delivered you from it. And he's brought you to a new place. And he's going to use you to counsel a woman who's walking in unwise relationships and to help her find freedom and experience. God's going to use that, that long, painful stretch of infertility where you wanted a child desperately and couldn't have one. He's going to use that to help someone who's struggling when their greatest desire is not coming true. And you're going to be able to give the testimony, what I thought I wanted was not what I needed, and God loved me enough not to give it to me. And I found joy in what He has given me. I have found satisfaction in what He has given me. Your broken marriage is going to be the thing that heals somebody else's marriage. A, your son or daughter's death is going to be that thing that gives you the perseverance to help somebody walk through whatever they're going through. I think here at Easter uh, that nobody gives me the ability to imagine this more helpfully than J.R.R. Tolkien and two lines that show up in his Lord of the Rings trilogy. The first one happens at the very, very end of the movie or the book. I've seen them both, read them both, all, all of it. Um, and at the end of the movie, uh, you have uh, one of the heroes, a character named Samwise Gamgee, and he's laying in bed, and he's been in a coma, and he wakes up, and he sees uh, this character, Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead, and I thought the whole world was over and done and gone with. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Gandalf says, yes, the shadow has passed. Friends, the resurrection promises that everything sad is going to come untrue. We'll be redeemed. We'll have infinite worth and value in God's hands. The second is a sentence that starts to invert my life in a way that makes me imagine eternity. Gandalf, at a different point in the book, says, I tarried there in that ageless time, in the ageless time of that land where days bring healing instead of decay. Healing I found, and I was clothed in white. Every day of your life, you and I move closer to death. But there will come a day where every single day of our existence will bring more and more of life. Every day, I'll be stronger and more alive and more joyful and more thankful. So what do we do with all this? First one, I would say, is stop doubting and believe. For you, that might mean just being honest with God about all your questions. You can ask him about your questions. You can talk to him about them, and you can research the answers. He will talk to you if you talk to him. Pray. Second, if you already believe, I want to challenge you with this story. Some of you heard it early this morning, but I'll finish it, and we'll celebrate communion together. 
a pastor friend of mine talks about coaching his little league game, his son's little league game. And in their little league, you, there's a rule. You can only score 10 runs in any inning. And if you score 10 runs, then the other team immediately comes up to, to bat. It doesn't matter how many outs there are. In the last inning of the last game of the championship, he goes, and it's his son's turn to pitch. And he walks his son out to the mound, and he's holding the ball. And he says, son, look at the scoreboard. And his son looks up, and their team is up by 11 runs. He says, son, you know what happens if every single batter in this inning hits a home run? We win. You know what happens if you walk every batter in this inning? We win. We win. And so I want you to throw as hard as you can. I want you to pitch with everything you got. Because if you walk everybody, if you throw a thousand wild pitches, you know what happens? We win. We win. You know what happens if you get just hammered on and they hit a thousand home runs and you throw your best stuff? And you strike, we win. You know what happens if you're untouchable and nobody even puts the bat on the ball? We win. So go out and play like you're in the majors and you're throwing like John Smoltz. Go out and give it everything you got. If you are a believer, then this is proof that we win. You know what happens if you get cancer tomorrow? We win. Do you know what happens if you have to bury your family tomorrow? We win. Do you know what happens if you get to live till you're 100 and you see your children's 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 children and you put a million bucks in the bank? We win. Because we don't fight for victory. We don't struggle towards hope. We struggle from hope. We live from victory. And so we live hard. We serve hard. We love with everything we got because we're not afraid of losing. Because you know what happens? I've read the end of this book. We win. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for robbing us of fear. I know it still creeps into our lives in these small things about whether we get into that school or, uh, or whether so-and-so likes us or, 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 or how we're going to pay the bills, but we are so grateful that we no longer live under the shadow of the fear of death. And if there's someone here who wants to live in that freedom, who has come to see that you have conquered death and wants to trust you with their life, they can do that right now. They can become a Christian. They can become a follower of Jesus, a disciple, by just saying yes. It's as easy as ABC. Admit you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus died to save you. And C, commit to following him. If that's you and you want to do that right now, you can do it with a simple prayer. It's not magic. It's just talking to God. You can say something like this. Jesus, I admit, I've been running my own life. And the Bible calls that sin but I believe you died on a cross to save me and reconnect me to God. And so I commit to following you for the rest of my life as I figure out what all this means. I give you everything I know of myself. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to uh, celebrate Jesus' resurrection as we take up uh, the offering. We don't give because we have to. We give because we get to, because we get to participate in God's mission. Come, let us worship God.